Hallelujah. Christ is risen. This is indeed the great feast of the Christian year. Christians all around the world look forward to this day because it is the most important day that we celebrate. It is a day above all other days. It's a day for celebration. It's a day for joy. It's a day when Christians around the world gather to worship and sing special songs that we sing in no other time of the year. This is the day that we remember that after laying in the tomb for three days, Jesus rose from the dead and conquered death forever. But why is this so important? Why do Christians gather and worship on this day? Why is this day more special than any other day? Certainly it's remarkable and miraculous and amazing that Jesus rose from the dead, but what difference does the resurrection make in my life? And what difference does it make in your life? We're going to look at three different differences that it makes. And the first of them is something that Peter said in the sermon he preached that we heard in the book of Acts today. At the end of his sermon, after he's done talking about the resurrection, Peter says this. To him, speaking about Jesus, to him... All the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Everyone who believes in his name receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And this is something that was made possible because of his death and resurrection. But what do we mean by sin? Sin is simply to disobey God, to turn away from him, to do the opposite of what he's asking you to do. The word for sin in Greek comes from a a term for archery that just means to miss the mark. And so when we sin, we miss the mark of God's best for us. We miss the mark of his desire for good things in our lives. And when we sin, sometimes we might feel some kind of temporary fleeting pleasure. But when the temporary pleasure goes away, we're left feeling empty, broken, dirty, ashamed, embarrassed, and we want to hide. And this is how sin separates us from God. And it's been that way since the very beginning. If you remember the story of Adam and Eve all the way at the very beginning of the Bible, Adam and Eve were the first people that God brought into the world. And they were in perfect love and perfect harmony. And everything was awesome. And God told them, you can eat of anything in this garden except for the fruit from one tree in the middle of this garden. If you eat from that fruit, you will surely die. So he was warning them. He said, don't do that, because if you do, it's not going to be good for you. And of course, we all know this story. They went ahead and they ate that fruit anyway. And that was the first sin. And it brought sickness and death into the world. And what did Adam and Eve do as soon as they were done sinning? They went and they hid. They tried to hide from God. Now I want you to think for a second about who God is and think about whether it's even possible to hide from God. That's kind of a ridiculous proposition, isn't it? 
that we're going to hide from God. Adam and Eve cowering under some plant somewhere. Who do they think they are that they can hide from God? And the Psalms tell us something similar. When we look in the Psalms, it says this in 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, which is the place of the dead, or hell, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall surely hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. There's nowhere you can go that you can hide from God. There's nowhere you can go. When we sin, God always comes after us. And we tend to run like a criminal running from the police. We try to escape. But no matter where you go, he's right there. He's always going to be chasing you down. He's always going to be right next to you. There's nowhere you can go that's far away from him. So why do we run? Why is that our response? Why do we try and hide? Well, I think it has a lot to do with fear. Two kinds of fear, really. The first is a fear of God's punishment. And the second is a fear of losing what we know. Losing the sins that comfort us even as they try to destroy us. It might be wrong. We might know it's wrong. But in some strange way, it it comforts us because it's our sin. And we don't want to give it up. But here's the thing. We run from God seeking happiness when all the time God is the true source of happiness. And so the further that we run away from him, the less happy we're going to be. And he's always chasing right after us saying, I'm here. If you'll just turn around, I'm I'm here. You can be happy. You can be fulfilled. I'm here. St. Augustine, who was one of the early church fathers, Uh, wrote a book about his own spiritual journey. When he was a youth, he was really far from God. He did all kinds of stuff that was bad. His mother prayed for him for more than 20 years that he would come back and find Jesus. And so when he wrote his autobiography about his life and about how he found God, he put this right at the very beginning. He said, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And that's true for all of us. Every one of us has a heart that was shaped for God. Every one of us needs God to fill that hole in our hearts. And without God, all we experience is emptiness. And we try and fill that with all kinds of things. That's why we cling to those sins. That's why they comfort us, because we're trying to fill that hole in our hearts. But God is the only one who can truly satisfy that desire. God is the only one who can truly plug that hole. And God is willing to follow you into the darkest, most sinful places to rescue you, to restore you, and to bring you back. He was willing to go to death itself to bring you back to life. 
And here's the thing about being afraid of God's punishment. God's not out to get you. He's not there to yell at you. He's not there to zap you with lightning bolts from his fingers. That's not who God is. He's coming after you, not to punish you, but because he loves you. And he wants you back. And he wants you to know that he misses you. Even as you continue in your sin, Jesus is right there, right next to you, saying, I can help you with that. I can take that burden off your shoulders. You don't have to live like that anymore. I can help you. But he'll never force you to accept his help. He'll always continue to pursue you, waiting patiently until you're ready. But here's the thing, you can't save yourself. There's no way that it's possible for you to save yourself. You can't do it on your own. And the more you sin, the more you're captive to sin, like a barbed fish hook digging deeper and deeper into your flesh. It hurts to remove it. And often it's nearly impossible. The embarrassment, the shame, the addiction, all of these become chains which bind us. And you need the power of Jesus and his resurrection to unlock those chains and set you free. As long as you're struggling with it on your own, it will never work. But Jesus can do it. He can set you free. He can loose the bonds which hold you captive. You can try to escape, and you might even have some temporary victories, but when things get hard, we always slip back to the things that we know. And what we know is sin. There are so many people who deeply desire to return to God, but they think they have to get rid of the sin that's in their lives first. The thing is, that's kind of like a seriously sick person on their deathbed saying, I intend to go to the hospital, I just want to get a little better first. How's that working out for you? It's not. Church is not the place that we go when we get it all figured out. Church is the place where we go to heal because we're all broken. Every single person in this room is broken and we all need God's healing touch. We all need God's redemption. We all need his forgiveness. And we're all on the same journey together. And so we need each other. And we need you too. You're always welcome here. If this isn't your church home, you're always welcome here. All of us are always welcome here. No matter how far you've strayed from God, God is always opening his arms to welcome you back. And all we need to do is say, I'm sorry, thank you, and please. I'm sorry, Lord, for the things that I've done. I'm sorry for turning away from you and leading a life that's not in accordance with your will. Thank you for what you've done for me. Thank you that you died on the cross for my sin and then rose again so that I might have life. Would you please come into my heart? Would you please release me from these chains that hold me in bondage to sin? Would you please heal me and forgive me? That's all it takes. It's a free gift. All you have to do is accept it. 
So God forgives us of our sins. And that's the power of the resurrection. But I want to tell you that there's more. In Romans chapter 6, which we read at our Easter vigil this morning, Paul says this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Jesus didn't just come to forgive us. He came to give us new life. To free us. Remember, sin is missing God's best for us. And to follow Jesus in new life is to embrace the good things that God has. To walk in newness of life. To be resurrected from our death, which comes from sin. There's a Billy Joel song. I don't know if any of you are Billy Joel fans. It's one of his most upbeat songs, and yet it's one of his saddest. And in it, he says, They say there's a heaven for those who will wait. Some say it's better, but I say it ain't. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. The problem with this is that it comes from a misunderstanding of what Christian life is all about. This is what we sometimes call pie in the sky when we die. We die and we go to heaven and it's all good and we get to eat pie there. That's not in the Bible, actually, but, you know, the pie part. Going to heaven, that's in the Bible. The pie, uh, maybe there's pie in heaven. I wouldn't doubt it. But here's the thing. It's not just about waiting for pie in the sky when we die. The Christian life isn't about waiting to die so you can have life. The Christian life is about life beginning right now. It's not about deferring fun and joy in this life so that we can have fun in the next life. That's not how it works. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, I came that they can have life and have it to the full. And so the Christian life isn't meant to be a life of dreariness. It's supposed to be a life of joy. Abundant life. Better life than you can possibly imagine. The Christian life is filled with love, joy, peace, laughter, relationships, belonging, support, encouragement, and hope. And that brings me to my last point, because there's yet even more. When we follow Jesus, we have hope. Hope for the future. In his letter to the Thessalonians, Paul is talking about death. He's talking about grieving and how sad it is when people that we love die. And I'm sure so many of you have had people in your own life who have died this year or in the last few years. And it hurts when people die. It hurts when people that we love are no longer with us. And here's Paul's response to that. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. And by that he means people who have died. That you may not grieve as others do. He's still saying we grieve. It still hurts. There's still pain in that. But he says that you may not grieve as others do, 
who have no hope. Hopeless grief is a terrible grief. Hopeless grief is a pit of sorrow. But as Christians, we don't grieve as others do who have no hope. We grieve temporarily knowing that more is coming. That for those who have put their faith in Christ Jesus, we get to be with him when we die. And we get to join with every person who has believed in him and has gone before us to that wonderful place. And this is what it says at the end of the Bible, in chapter 1, almost the last chapter of Revelation. It says there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. That God's going to fix it all. He's going to set right everything that's been wrong. And it says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And then he says, this is Jesus' words, Behold, I am making all things new. That's the final word. When Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he struck a death blow to Satan, to hell, and to death. It was the decisive battle in the war. And the war's not over yet, but we already know that the victory is coming. We already know that all that's broken in this creation is being fixed. All that's wrong is being made right. God is coming back for us because he loves us. And there's nothing to fear in God. In the scriptures it says perfect love casts out all fear. And that's what God is. He is perfect love for us. In the Lord of the Rings series, there's a a moment in the story where Gandalf, the wizard, comes back. And this is a symbol of the resurrection. If you didn't know, Tolkien was a Christian. And the whole of that series is intended to be a, a, a description of the gospel. And when he comes back, there's a decisive victory. It's not over yet, but there's a decisive victory. And Samwise says to him, does this mean everything sad is coming untrue? And I'm here to tell you, yes, it does. In Jesus, everything sad is coming untrue. Everything is moving towards its final fulfillment, the final joy that's coming when the new heavens and the new earth arrive. And in the church, we get to experience a foretaste of that. We get to get a, a preview, a trailer of what's to come. And the things that are coming are good things. This morning in the Easter Vigil, we sang a beautiful ancient song called the Exaltet when we lit a candle called the Paschal Candle, this candle, which symbolizes the Passover of our Lord, how Jesus moved from death into life. And in the song, it says this. How holy is this night when wickedness is put to flight and sin is washed away. It restores innocence to the fallen and joy to those who mourn. It casts out pride and hatred and brings peace and concord. How blessed is this night when earth and heaven are joined and man is reconciled to God. This is our victory. This is the day of our celebration. This is the day of resurrection. Alleluia, Christ is risen. Let us pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus into this world to take on our flesh, to become what we are so that we can become what he is. We thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross and even more for your resurrection by which you trampled down death by death and gave us new life. We pray, Lord, that we would stop running from you, that we would embrace the good things that you have for us, and that we would have the assurance of the hope that's set before us when you will wipe away every tear from every eye and there will be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death because you have won the victory for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.